स्मार्ट यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन हेलो एंड वेलकम यू आर लिसनिंग टू द स्केच आई एम योर होस्ट श्रुतिजित आई एम ए डेली बेस्ड जर्नलिस्ट एंड द एडिटर इन चीफ ऑफ मिंट माई गेस्ट टूडे इज द डॉक्टर टर्न चीफ एग्जीक्यूटिव of the 50 billion dollar swiss pharma giant novartis vasan narasimhan or vas as he is better known as has just completed 5 years at the helm of the drug maker and it's been an action packed time vas is among the growing cohort of elite global ceos indians everywhere are proud of because of their indian heritage vas's parents are from tamil nadu and he has spoken about the influence of eastern philosophy in his life and work i hope to speak to him today about novartis's plans in india his agenda for the next 5 years of novartis the evolution of cancer therapies the future of indian pharma sector and the unboss leadership initiative that vas has implemented at his company vas thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to the sketch thank you so much for having me it's an honor to be here thank you this month you completed 5 years as novartis ceo firstly congratulations um what were your key focus areas when you uh, took over and how much of your agenda have you uh, gotten through Five years ago, when I started at Novartis, we looked out on the external community and saw that it was really a need to focus as a pure play innovative medicines company. We believe that as technology was moving so quickly in the external environment, we needed to get to a place where we could focus on where we create the most value, which is in high end technologies, high end medicines. So over the last five years, we've done about a hundred billion dollars of transactions. to focus Novartis into this pure play innovative medicines one of the largest pure play innovative medicines companies in the world and what's exciting now is we emerge from that we come to a place where we are i think in well positioned for this next era of medical innovation we are going to be a company uh, that's over 70,000 people globally that is reaching patients in over 100 markets around the world close to 250 to 270 million patients every year with really technologies that can tackle cancer or heart disease immunology diseases as well as tropical diseases that affect broad based populations around the world so it's an exciting time i think for us as a company what kind of monies do you invest in r&d every year and how critical is that you know as an r&d leader we every year invest almost 10 billion dollars in r&d that's one of the highest in amongst companies in any sector it's very traditional i think for a pharmaceutical company to invest a lot in r&d but i think what's unique about novartis is our consistency in that investment over time you know our history goes back 250 years we started in the dye making industry moved to the chemicals industry we even had relations with india i've seen in our history books uh, back in the mid 1800s Uh, and it's evolved since then now into a global healthcare giant global pharmaceuticals and i think what we've learned over that time is you have to be consistent in your commitment to innovation and make that consistent r&d investment to really find breakthrough medicines and breakthrough innovation so that's what we've tried to do consistency 10 billion dollars of r&d spend year in and year out and what's exciting is a lot of that happens here in india at our corporate center in hyderabad where we now have over 9000 people and really the opportunity to use that talent to help us develop medicines for the world. I want to I want to talk more about India but in a moment. Um you know I would really love to hear from you in the journey that you described in response to my first question um of becoming a focused innovative drug maker uh, fundamentally. 
What were the hardest trade-off decisions you had to make in that journey? You know, when you look at the history of large corporates, uh, you know, we always cycle back from a world of being conglomerates to being pure plays. And I think it's a difficult moment to decide to make that shift. As a conglomerate, uh, you have the opportunity to balance the risks across a range of different businesses. A decade ago, Novartis was in areas as broad as vaccines and animal health, eye care devices, consumer health, generics. And so on the one hand, that gives you a broad portfolio, but it means you can't focus and really become leading edge in any one of those areas. Making that transition to a pure play, you go to a different risk profile. You say, look, we're going to focus our capital, focus our people, say we're going to really, really put all of our energy in where we think we're the best in, in pure play innovative medicines. But you give up that balanced risk profile. So that was the first decision to make that kind of transition. And then, of course, doing all the steps is not easy. $100 billion of transactions over five years is, is a complex, complex um, enterprise. And, and then I think the, the second part of our journey has been to decide where do we really want to focus. And we used to be a company that was in over 10 different therapeutic areas, which is kind of the disease clusters that a company like us work on. We focused that down to five, five technology areas, really trying to decide where do we think in this era where technology is moving so fast, you have to decide where can you win and create the most value. That's the next transition. And every one of these has big people implications. And so when you make these changes, you have to take, in our case originally, 130,000 people when I started as CEO on this journey of transformation. And maybe I would say that's probably the hardest part is guiding those people through the transformation as we go. You're from a, I mean, you're, you're, you're a trained physician. You practiced as a physician. You, your DNA is a, as a scientist and an R&D person. Uh, it sounds like in the last five odd years, you've had to uh, get into a lot of uh, deal structuring, finance, and all of that. Uh, has it been a lot of learning? A lot of learning. I, I think as a, a CEO, you're always learning. <laughs> That's the one thing you have to accept. And I think the longer you do this role, the more you realize you don't have the answers, but you have to ask the best questions you can and try to explore and figure out the right way forward. And you don't know what you don't know, and that's another part of this as well. But yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot, and I've learned a lot about the world of corporate finance. The way I think about it, as a, you have to learn to speak many different languages, and not languages like we traditionally think. I mean, I was trained in the language of science, the language of medicine. You have to speak the world of the language of investors, the language of the business community, the language of politicians, and the language of policymakers. So many different languages you need to learn as a CEO to be able to communicate your narrative uh, to, to, to the external stakeholders. In all of business, um, two areas of risk that I'm always fascinated by is, one, the investments pharma companies make in uh, in drug discovery because the odds are very high. You know, odds are kind of stacked against you finding. I mean, it's a high-risk investment, let's put it that way. Um, another is chip companies that make mega investments without a really good view into how that market is going to progress. So give us a flavor of how do you, like in terms of the financial planning and engineering and all of that, um, how do you assess that risk? How do you sort of cover for it? Just how do you do it? I mean, it is it is an extraordinary industry in that, you know, people sometimes forget because we live in this era of so many medicines and so many vaccines and so many diagnostics. 
you know, 99% of the things we do in research don't work. Actually, it's even worse. I mean, when you really look at it in early stage research, it's one out of a thousand, right? That's what we are, we're doing. And I like to tell our people, you know, we're unpacking billions of years of evolution, of evolution of life on this planet as we try to understand the thousands, 20,000 genes and 20,000 proteins and trillions of transcripts and trying to figure out how all of that pieces together to impact a disease, the odds are long. It's like sending a rocket to the moon, right? That's what we try to do. Um, and you have to have a really, really strong comfort with failure. We fail a lot. And that failure can't dissuade you from trying again. Um, and I think the reason we're able to do it is, is one, most people in our company, actually almost all people at a company like Novartis, and I think in our sector, are deeply passionate about improving human health. And they're willing to take these long odds because it's such an incredible thing to improve uh, people's ability to live longer, healthier lives. And then, of course, when you make a scientific discovery, it's extraordinary. And of course, then you can hopefully generate the returns down the line. The biggest thing I've learned about the portfolio management, the business element of this, is you can pick the losers. So the, the art of this is to keep screening and say, here are the things which are unlikely to really make a big difference in medicine and stop those and then hope amongst all the rest you might get a hit and accept the fact you might go years without getting a big hit. And that's when you have to have tremendous courage to stay the course. And that's why I think you, in the end, while our sector has been around for 150 years, you really only have 10, 12 giant players. Those are companies that had the courage to stay the course. No, it is it is really fascinating. I don't think there are many industries where the financial health of the company is really, in a manner of speaking, like, you know, punted at such tremendous odds. I think you're right. A lot of the big ones have been fortunate to have that cycle work out for them. Uh, but it's not something you can really plan for, right? Like scientific discovery might happen, might not happen. It's very serendipitous. Right. And also, you know, the other element is you make an investment and you don't know if it's going to pan out for eight to 10 years, right? And so you, you make this portfolio of bets and you hope that, you know, you make the right ones with great scientists, great, great thinking, and that eight to 10 years, this ultimately pans out. So when it comes to shareholders of a pharma company, I mean, given these circumstances and given the sort of, you know, differentiated nature of the pharma industry, what do shareholders in a pharma company look for and expect from uh, a CEO? So I think most important is the concept of what we call replacement power. And that's really the ability of your innovation to replace your sales over time. Because there's multiple challenging dynamics in our, in our industry. One is the long odds that we've talked about. But the other is that all of our innovative products go generic at some point. And so we have to replace all of our sales with new innovations. So not only do we have long odds at the baseline, but we don't keep those innovations forever. Other sectors might keep the chip industry or they may be able to hold their innovation for long periods of time. We have to replace it again and again and again. So I think investors want to see growth, of course. I mean, that's standard, I think, across sectors. They want to see replacement power as evidenced by R&D productivity and the ability to launch medicines consistently. And then, of course, all of the other things you would expect, financial discipline, strong free cash flows, et cetera. But it's that growth, pipeline, replacement power that really is the most important thing in our sector. Vas, um, 
I want to delve more into the science of it. But let's for a moment come to India. Uh, tell us a little bit about your presence in India, your operations here, um, and your thoughts on the Indian market uh, and its evolution. Is it an exciting market for Novartis? Yeah, absolutely. So we're very proud of our, our presence uh, in India. We believe we're the largest, likely, of the multinationals in India with our total presence of over 10,000 people. That spans uh, our business, but also our large corporate center. The largest corporate center Novartis has, we have three very large corporate centers where we house many of the key functions in the company, uh, and that's in Hyderabad, where we've had a presence since, since 2005, and we've built that consistently over time. And now, I mean, our Hyderabad Center, which is truly, I think, an extraordinary center, uh, we house everything from a lot of our development operations for drug development, our patient safety, manufacturing, a lot of our AI and IT science capabilities, finance, HR. I mean, it's an extraordinary center and really at one of the hearts of Novartis. And I think that's unique that we've been able to build that here. And that's really a testament to the talent we find in India uh, and the ability, of course, for that talent to integrate with our, our global company. So that's been an extraordinary story. From a business standpoint, we really try to mirror the journey that we have globally in India. Uh, you know, we have the plans to exit generics. We've exited consumer health. We're exiting older brands. And the same thing happens in our Indian uh, affiliate here at Novartis, where we focus on bringing the next wave of innovations to the Indian market. Uh, and that's what we've done, I think, consistently over time. Now, I would say that India for a global biopharmaceutical company is kind of a mid-tier market. And that's driven by a few things. One, of course, the, the reimbursement environment here is much more geared towards generics. And then there's limited reimbursement for, for innovative medicines. That's improving, and it's improving consistently, but still not at the level you have in many global markets. I mean, the four global largest markets for a company like Novartis are the U.S., Europe, China, and Japan. Uh, and then I think the other part of the journey for India now is to make the transition from, I would say, a more generics, commodity-oriented bio biotechnology environment to trying to be an innovation uh, powerhouse. When I th see, you know, you talked about global CEOs and so much talent, so much capability, I think if we could build a stronger IP environment here, a stronger data protection environment here, and allow biotech industries here in India to really flourish, it could become a biotechnology powerhouse. But there has to, I think, be that commitment over time to make that happen. Vas, uh, tell us about what role India can play um, in the pharmaceutical industry going forward. There is a lot of interest in what role India can play uh, as a source of bulk drugs uh, and also whether India can replace in many ways uh, the very key role that China plays today uh, in terms of active pharmaceutical ingredients. Certainly, India has been, I think, a, a large player in the API market, uh, the actual active pharmaceutical ingredient market over time, key supplier of many companies, including us. I think going forward, uh, what I would say is a few options and opportunities for India. One is to increase, continue to increase the quality standards in the API manufacturing. I mean, I think we've seen incidents now where there have been you know, challenges because of lower quality products from various sources around the world. I think we really have to make sure India stays at the high end of the quality regime because then, of course, you can be a global exporter. And then the next step is to continue the journey that some Indian companies have made to become more of a biotechnology 
producer because I think that would be the next step up the value chain. And there are efforts underway now to create various bioparks in India where India can start to become a biologics producer at scale. It's also a journey China has been on. And then I think over time, continuing to move up the value chain of more and more complex medicines. As India wants to go on that journey, the biggest thing will be ensuring it can meet the standard of global regulators. Because to really be a global supplier, FDA, the Europeans, the Japanese, all have to be comfortable with the quality standards within India. But I think that can happen. It'll be a decades-long journey, but that will be the next step for the sector. Does India, the government, the key officials there, um, do they consult you on some of these matters? You know, you're a top figure in the global pharma industry. Um, you know, you're, you're of Indian heritage. Uh, are there conversations about what India could do, etc., that you're pitching in on? I mean, right now, I think our India team is very closely involved with the with the government and providing advice and providing providing perspectives. Not me personally, but I think. Uh, there is very strong links between Novartis and the government, and we do our best to provide that feedback. Wonderful. Um, on on the run-ins that Indian pharma companies uh, have with, the frequent run-ins that Indian pharma companies have with the US FDA, um, it has sort of become a political issue with a lot of folks in India believing uh, that, uh, uh, you know, this is sort of a perverse trade barrier at one level rather than, genuine sort of concerns around quality and hygiene. What does your take on this issue? My observations, uh, and we have manufacturing plants all around the world. You know, we have manufacturing plants in India, uh, in China, in Europe, uh, in parts of Africa, in Latin America, in North America, uh, is that the FDA is extraordinarily consistent on these standards. There is one standard uh, FDA has. They apply it consistently. Uh, my belief is that global regulators like the ones from Europe and the, in the U.S., their quality divisions are truly independent and have to make these determinations based on what they think is in the best interest of patient safety. So that's my genuine experience uh, on these matters. I don't know about the specifics of what's happened recently in India, but I think one has to just understand you have to meet that global standard, and they're very consistent. Whether it's Novartis or a company, a local company in India, it's the same standard. Which that means the hard truth or the, or the bitter pill, as it were, uh, is that Indian pharma companies have to really then consistently be, maintain a very high quality. I think one of the things, uh, consistency, but also to recognize as well that the regulators are always increasing the bar over time. As they see that companies get more and more mature, their expectations, not you know, not in a sudden way, but incrementally keep going up. And you have to stay up with the, that, that bar, you know, over time. Otherwise, of course, you, you're on the wrong end of the regulator. Plus, when you took over, you emphasized uh, the role of data, uh, data, presumably meaning data science and uh, digital technologies uh, in your sector and for Novartis. Uh, tell us how that is critical and how you have managed to implement uh, or unlock the powers of those technologies at Novartis so far? So when you think about AI and data science, you're seeing a revolution and now with generative AI. And what I've observed over the last decade of, of looking at this is that there's always a hype cycle and then the reality sets in, hype cycle and reality sets in. But there are now places where I can legitimately say data science and AI are starting to transform our sector. Um, one is that when you think about the research work we do to discover a new drug, 
this whole area of what we call generative chemistry, where AI algorithms can start to generate candidate molecules for us and really help us optimize those molecules. We put them into testing. We put the information back. It's going to really speed up drug discovery. Similarly, when you look at uh, what some of the work that Google has been able to do on protein folding with their AlphaFold technology, it is going to transform drug discovery because now we can predict how proteins fold without actually having to do the experiment, and it's extraordinarily accurate. So as you start to see these things happen, I think you can really see the transformation starting to unfold. Similarly, when we think about our development operations, we work with Palantir and other companies, uh, partners, to predict how our trials are going to actually unfold and bring large data sets together into data lakes. Again, it's early days, but you can start to see that happen. We have a Microsoft AI Innovation Lab, which is looking at many areas, both in generative chemistry as well as using natural language processing to generate documents that used to take human beings hours or weeks and now can be done in minutes. All of these things are now starting to to get to scale. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. It'll never go as fast as maybe uh, the hype cycle predicts, but it does happen over time. And I think it is transforming our sector. That's fascinating. Um, Is there going to be a time, you you reckon, uh, when human trials, um, partly or, or, you know, substantially, can be replaced with uh, AI? I believe that AI can help us generate hypotheses. Um, But I still think from everything I know, but it's, of course, it's always, you never know how the world will unfold. Um, we, We have to still do the human experiment simply because AI is, is, is limited by the data sets you provide it. And as I mentioned earlier, the complexity of the human body is staggering. Biology is, is staggering. When you think about 30 trillion or 40 trillion cells in our body, um, any moment in time, trillions of RNA transcripts or trillions of proteins, thousands and thousands of different combinations of proteins and and uh, you know other parts of the genome, proteome, transcriptome, we don't understand a lot of this. And if you can't feed that information to the algorithm, the algorithm can't predict what's going to happen. And so in that sense, at least for the foreseeable future, you still need to do the human experiment to really understand, do these medicines help patients at the end of the day? Vas, to your mind, what role should the state play in securing healthcare for its citizens. Um, the context of my question is that the world over, there are obviously different healthcare models. The US does it in a certain way. The UK does it in a certain way. The India, you know, I mean, India does it in a sort of a mixed hybrid way, some provision, some support, um, all of that. But really, uh, technology, infrastructure, insurance, all of this has to sort of come together. But at a very fundamental level, um, what role do you think um, the state should play in, in healthcare? I think at the base line, the state uh, should ensure people can get basic health care, uh, the b- very basic elements of, if you think about childhood vaccination and, and really in improving childhood mortality. And look, around the world over the last 30 years, childhood mortality is down 50%. So we have to also remind ourselves that the gains we've had are simply extraordinary in improving health around the world, regardless of income level. I mean, these are amazing. 
So I think that basic level is is key. And then as countries get better and better uh, from an income standpoint, improve from an income standpoint, there should be more and more support for innovation and how the state can enable that. Now, I think it very context specific, should that be private, public insurance, probably a mix is what really works is when you have a mix of public to really ensure that populations that are not able to access private insurance and private health care are supported and then private insurance for those populations that can't afford you know the the to pay for the premiums and get the the appropriate care i think mixed models generally tend to work in most markets around the world as those markets mature and then you create an ecosystem where the baseline is covered and then innovation can be supported and then that innovation goes generic and that innovation then becomes part of the baseline and what's if you really think about it the baseline goes up it goes up and goes up and that will then that's why we've seen such extraordinary grains in, in life expectancy uh, in the world over time. I mean again we live in a world where 150 years ago or 130 years ago life expectancy was 30 35 years of age on average. Now we live in a world in most parts of the world it's 70 years plus in many parts of the world 80 90 years plus. Yeah. Japan especially Japan especially true true. Let's come to Domatas India as a company separate from your operations here. December quarter sales uh, were down 19%. It hit about just about 100 crore. Um, in terms of the scale, it seems quite dwarfed by, say, what you have in China and, and the kind of focus you have in China. Um, is that limited by market size? Do, how do you see this playing out? Can it be a lot bigger here? You know, when you think about our Indian business over the next five years, we expect it to grow double digits, so continue with, with very solid, solid growth. But I, I do think that for us, India is a longer-term uh, play for us to really build a, a, global, a really globally-sized market, a market that could be one of our top 10 markets over time. And that's really dependent on the continuing growth of insurance, private insurance, the continuing growth as well of supporting innovation and reimbursement in many of the various sectors that provide reimbursement in the system. I think India has done an extraordinary step with Ayushman Bharat to really provide the basic services and the basic healthcare. But I think as the reimbursement environment improves, you could look at a very different narrative for India and global biopharmaceuticals. I mean, you look at the China case study, and I don't want to overplay because it's very different context. But I think when you look at China, what they were able to do is modernize their regulator. They provided strong IP and strong data protection. They put in place a national reimbursement for innovative medicines uh, where they provide the access to the population. And that led to it becoming the second largest biopharmaceutical market in the world and also created a burgeoning biotechnology sector in Shanghai and Beijing. So that took a decade, but they were able to do it. And you could certainly see India on that path over time. You didn't say it, but the implication of what you said in some ways is that India has not modernized its, uh, its regulator. Is the drug price control regime in India an obstacle to innovation? What I think about it, is it stage appropriate for the development of, of the country? And I think, I do believe now as India becomes an innovation powerhouse, there is a moment now to really rethink many of these regimes to say, how do you create a pro-innovation environment where, while understanding the government has to provide for a very large population that is lower income? But I think you can do both. And I think it's finding the balance now to really create a pro-innovation environment so that you can keep 
investing in the leading edge. And actually what happens is you raise the overall level of healthcare for the broader population when you do that. So I do think there now is an opportunity to further modernize all of these elements, regulatory, IP, and reimbursement in India. Where does the, you know, because you have such a vantage of so many different markets around the world, in terms of, you know, adequate evolution and modernization, where would you say India's uh, drug regulatory regime stands? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I mean... It, Slightly it, behind the curve? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about a head and behind, because I keep thinking about is it stage appropriate for the development of the country? But I would say it's kind of in the middle of, of, of the groupings of, of, of countries that you see. I mean, I think certainly consistent with you know global middle-income countries. I think it's very consistent with what, what you see in those countries. But I think that the difference that India has is this extraordinary innovation capability, which is why we're in Hyderabad at the scale that we are. And so in the same way the tech sector has become such a powerhouse in India, you know, I think there's an opportunity for the biotech sector to become a powerhouse in India. But you have to get these other elements right, and you have to stay consistent over a long period of time to make that happen. But I was struck by what you said about China, that, you know, that, that they, the first thing you said was that they modernized their drug regulator. And it seems to me, and it, it's very plausible, of course, that that is sort of a leading condition for the subsequent evolution of the industry within a country. Is that the case? I think it's it's the mix of, of the multiple elements, modernizing IP and data protection. So your innovations, putting aside Novartis, if you're a biotechnology company in India, you need to know that your innovations are protected in India so you can access the, the Indian market and then you can go global. Second, you need uh, a regulator that is efficient and um, cl clear and transparent and has modernized its regulatory framework. Um, and so that's absolutely, uh, cr you know, critical as well. And then you need reimbursement support in the local market, which then gives a first market for any biotech company. And then you can go global from there. And I think when you get those conditions right, I mean, the interesting thing in my mind about India is you have this diaspora. I mean, if you look at biotech companies around the world, the number of Indians or people of Indian heritage that are in these companies around the world is quite significant. And so you could create a sector here, I think, over time. We won't double-click into the, the two things you said at the end, but I'm interested in double-clicking on the first part where you said, is there, you know, which is about the certainty of IP protection in India, um, is there far too much uncertainty about the protection of your IP in India? I think the situation has improved substantially, and I certainly give the Indian government tremendous credit for that. But I think we have to continue to look at ways, and I think the Indian government is looking at this, to improve first, how can you efficiently uh, get your IP instituted in India? And that can take be a long process uh, with a lot of objections, and, and I think that that's one. Second, once that IP is instituted, how can you efficiently defend it, you know, given the courts and, and the system, uh, system here between the state and the federal government? How can you really efficiently defend uh, that IP? And then in our sector, it, there's a, an additional complexity because the IP covers one part of the story, which is the compound and how we produce this molecule, this medicine. But then along the way, we generate a tremendous amount of data, and it's the data plus the medicine together that actually creates the, the medical product that we provide, the, the pharmaceutical that we provide. And that data also has to get protected. And right now in India, there is no regulatory data protection. 
and as I believe countries modernize their regulatory framework, they do provide regulatory data protection. And what that does is then allows the whole ecosystem for biotech to develop. So we need not only the, the IP framework to continue to strengthen, but then also I think uh, the regulatory data protection to be instituted in India. The other thing I'll say is that signals matter in our sector and in global business. And I think the more signals uh, you know, India can send to say, look, they are, it's pro-innovation, uh, trying to support the, the next wave of, of technologies and companies, um, and not falling into the rhetoric of things like TRIPS waivers and things like that, which sends very strong signals to industries like ours around, you know, are we, are we really a priority in this ecosystem? Vas, how has your Indian heritage, um, your growing up years, your parents, um, how have all of that influenced uh, your life and your work? It's influenced me tremendously. And I, and I think uh, as time passes, the things I've learned or were taught by my parents and my grandparents and, and being raised reading the Bhagavad Gita and, and, and learning the stories of the, of the great Indian epics, um, you know, has a bigger and bigger impact. And I'd say even, even more so, the practices of yoga and pranayama and meditation are actually the ways that help me navigate um, you know, uh, the, the complexities of being, of being a CEO. So those were tremendous gifts. I like to always say that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And certainly I would, I would say my grandparents and my parents are the giants whose shoulders I stand on uh, and certainly help me navigate the role of a CEO. Do you have a strong and consistent yoga practice? Do you meditate every day? What's your regime like? So I, I, I do meditation and pranayama every day, yes. Um, yoga a few times a week, yes. And so I, I try to be very, very consistent about it. And I think it's the consistency that, that also matters. But I, I do believe that while, you know, and more and more, of course, the, the medical journals are understanding these practices, but I think probably when they were developed and, and maintained over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there was this kind of collective wisdom and understanding that this helps human beings navigate life. Uh, and that's why these practices survived, right, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So uh, it does sometimes require me to suspend my desire to understand all of the biological mechanisms of what exactly is going on. But certainly you feel the benefits, and so that creates a strong will to continue the practice. India has a huge NCD burden. Um, as a doctor, what are your five top tips for a healthy life? So I always break down the approach. Uh, I, a coach of mine taught me this, and, and I think it, it makes sense. It's mindset, movement, nutrition, and recovery. And if you can follow these practices consistently over time, it creates a lot of energy in yourself and that energy you can give to others. Mindset we've talked about, of course, that's meditation or setting a daily intention uh, observing your own mind because self-awareness is so important. Uh, I think pranayama is really part of mindset as well. It's really training your nervous system. So I think mindset practice is hugely, hugely important. Nutrition, of course, is a global topic with the global obesity getting to where it is. But I think in the end, if, if you can always observe and ask yourself, why do you eat? Why am I eating right now? And am I eating for nutrition? Am I eating for performance? Am I eating for pleasure? And be aware of why you eat. And be aware that um, in the end, there are 
are simple things you can do to improve your diet. And if you do those things consistently, it has, I mean, just excess sugar and excess, um, you know, related additives is a simple, simple improvement. Um, and then when you think about movement, I think that the power of, of movement and regular movement, I think, uh, is tremendous. It doesn't have to be exercise for say, if that's not your thing, take the stairs, go for walks, but build movement into your life. And then, of course, recovery. And the biggest thing I'd say about recovery, I mean, and of course, there's you want to take breaks from work, vacations, et cetera, but the biggest thing is sleep. Sleep is the great medicine that evolution gave us. Sleep is the most preserved thing in life from 400, 500 million years ago. Evolution preserves a form of sleep in almost every living creature. And it's because it has incredible restorative powers. And, I mean, I think we have to remind ourselves that if you sleep regularly and sleep well, it will make you much, much healthier over time. My ex-boss, Ariana Huffington, who's a huge sleep evangelist, uh, what you said would be music to her ears. I'm going to send this uh, episode to her. Vas, last question on cancer. There are a lot of exciting developments uh, today around cancer treatment. What are the most exciting ones for you as a, as a longstanding uh, person who has observed the field? I mean, a lot of exciting things happening in cancer. I think first for context, when you think about it, on the one hand, many cancers now have become significantly improved in terms of mortality, in terms of the ability to live with cancers on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, we have so much further to go. I see a few things happening. Um, one in terms of uh, the way we use therapies is moving earlier and earlier in, in the cancer paradigm. So can you treat cancers after surgical intervention to prevent them from coming back? Can you use biomarkers, so-called circulating tumor DNA, to identify cancers or monitor cancers, again, so you can intervene earlier? And the reason that's so important is the earlier you intervene in a cancer, the more likely you are to be able to get a very lasting response. So that's one, is how we move the paradigm earlier and earlier. And then the second is technologies. And, you know, we move now from pills and injections to this whole new world of cell therapies where we can take cell therapies, cells out of the body, take these immune cells, program them on how to kill the cancer, and then they put them back into the patient and kill the cancer. You have this world of radioligand therapy in both of these areas. Novartis is one of the global leaders where you can target radiation to the very specific location where the cancer is in the body and watch the improvement happen in the scans. Of course, immuno-oncology, which has become a global phenomenon, where you unlock the immune system, which normally it knows how to fight a cancer, but sometimes the cancers can evade the immune system. So how can you use immuno-oncology to, to fight cancers? So these are the kinds of things that are happening, and I do expect we'll continue to see improvements. The thing about cancer is it's very hard, because cancers are constantly trying to evade the drugs we create. But you see this consistent improvement. And again, if you look at a 30-year track of time, our ability to impact cancer has been extraordinary. Was, uh, it's been a real delight. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. That's it from me for this episode. You've been listening to The Sketch. This episode was edited by Rajesh Jos. Mok Sharma is the producer of this show and Sanju V. Abraham is our sound engineer. You can email us with your thoughts on thesketch at livemint.com. For more updates on this podcast, follow HT Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. To listen to more such Mint podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. Goodbye and thanks for listening. 
This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.